0: ...always crept in on mission days. I sat up on the edge of my cot as Sergeant Hansen leaned over and whispered, Something is very strange this morning, Lieutenant. What's up, Hansen? I grumbled. Sir, they've taken the ball turret out of the plane. We flew B-17 four-engine bombers. One group carried the Red Triangle Insignia on the rudder fin. The ball turret served as the only protection from Me-109 German fighter planes attacking at our underside. Because we'd be vulnerable as hell without those twin 50 caliber machine guns. I was sure Hansen was mistaken. Come on, Sarge, they wouldn't do that, I assured him. Don't know, sir, but they sure are gone. I asked Hansen if it was just our ship. Hell no, he said. It's every plane in the squadron. I shook my head in disbelief. Then, almost casually, Hansen turned and over his shoulder added, That's not all. Ready for this one? We're not loading bombs. Now that really threw me. No ball turret, no bombs. It must be some kind of training mission, I figured. Perhaps to work on our formation flying. Rather than try to sort it out, I decided to wait for the briefing to get it all first hand. At 5 a.m. on the button, there was a sudden end to the chatter as the commanding officer, CO, walked into the briefing room. Behind him was the target destination wall we regularly examined before each mission. The wall is typically draped in cloth until the CO is ready to outline our objectives. Today, with word of the missing ball turrets and no bombs having spread throughout the base, the crew was especially curious about the wall. The CO began by telling us we were about to embark on the most unusual mission we had been on to this point. No factory cities or submarine pens to blast. Today, he explained, we're going to bring back French soldiers who had been prisoners of war since France was overrun by German forces in 1940. The CO pulled back the drape covering the destination wall to reveal a detailed map of Europe. Every eye in the room traced the thin black line that ran from Polbrook across Europe to Linz, Austria. That was our flight plan. General George Patton's Third Army had just liberated this area of Austria and although fighting continued south of Linz, thanks to the P-51s and P-47s of the Ninth Air Force, the skies were cleared of most German fighters. Not only that, but since the American and British armies had backed all opposition deep into Germany, the threat of serious anti-aircraft fire was practically non-existent. This was far different than in 1943, when the Eighth Air Force was looking at 30% of its planes lost on most missions. The old man, as we called the CO, he was 35, explained that they had removed the ball turrets from the planes to lighten each ship. This would allow us to carry more Frenchmen. There would be no flak jackets either, the CO declared. This news hit me hard. I'd been used to sitting on mine as I flew, trying everything I could to protect my private parts. A man has to know what's really important. The CO's last announcement, however, was greeted with pleasant surprise. He said we were to fly individually. There would be no formation, and we could choose our own altitude. After having flown exclusively from 19,000 to 23,000 feet on all missions, to me, this was an open invitation to get a close look at some of the damage the war had done to German cities, and to have some fun. We pilots jumped at the chance to cross the English Channel at about 100 feet above the waves, and then to hedgehop our way across Europe. It's been 55 years, but I can still see the fear and anxiety that flushed the face of a cyclist in France who turned to see our four props bearing down on him. We were like kids in a candy store. Come to think of it, we were kids. I had just crossed over my 20th birthday, and with few exceptions, the rest of our crew was about the same age. For some magical reason, we all felt indestructible that day, like we were going to live forever.